I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 47 of The Hilo, the weekly news, pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Today we will be discussing Quincy Jones's staggeringly revelatory interview with Vulture, aka the best celebrity interview of all time, Sex and the City Rifts, Dolly's specialist (laughs) subject, and we have a brilliant guest author, Laura Freeman, who is here to talk about her beautiful book, The Reading Cure. I actually rang Pandora in a bit of a panic because... I suddenly sense that maybe you might not be as invested in the Kim Cattrall SJP. Yeah, no, I'm not. So I made her promise on the phone that we would discuss it extensively. (laughs) This is our first ever recording from our new home. Sorry if the audio quality isn't quite what it was, but, well, c'est la vie, friendles. And it's Valentine's Day. It's already a much more, like, loungy vibe in here, Frendles. Well, Dolly's just had some avocado toast and tea, so clearly she's... Which was very nice, thank you so much. (laughs) Um, Yes, it's Valentine's Day. Well, tomorrow, when you're listening to this, if you listen to it with bated breath on the day of its release, then it will be the day after Valentine's Day. But as we're recording it right now, it is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, CJ and Dolly. Did you get spoiled? I uh, got a card from Old Faithful, Mum. <laughs> I got one from my dad. Mine was um, rather sweetly, but also rather annoyingly, absolutely stuffed full of red heart confetti. <laughs> At least it wasn't glitter. Yeah, glitter would have been worse. I'm surprised we've never been sent a press release about the percentage of people that have been like traumatised by glitter in envelopes. <laughs> my husband cooked me a Valentine's breakfast and left me with all the washing up. Oh, that's romantic, isn't it? The presentation was amazing, though. I showed Dolly a picture earlier. It's just everything balancing on top of each other with one flower purloined from a vase of flowers that someone else had given to me. Here's a fun fact for you for Valentine's Day via my email inbox. 52% of people are celebrating Valentine's Day at home this year. People, does that mean couples? Because technically we're celebrating Valentine's Day at home right now. I think it means Valentine's evening, you pedant. Right, okay, okay. Well, 52% is quite high though. Yeah, I mean, I'm going out for dinner with my friend Sabrina. It is just a nightmare to get a table, so I wonder if... if I know, I'm quite surprised it... you've tried to <laughs> tried to go again. I know, finally, Dean Street Townhouse came up trumps. But it was a nightmare. We rang everywhere. So I think a lot of it might be just be disorganisation. I think it's nice doing Valentine's... Well, any romantic meal, I think it's nice doing it at home. Well, given that we edit the podcast in the evening, that mm. will be my Valentine's plan. And this is Clearly your... you're going to come back sozzled and producer Charlie's going to get a load of notes at midnight. Happy <laughs> Valentine's Day, producer Charlie. <laughs> this is your one true love, so I think it makes sense that that's what you're going to be fiddling with on Valentine's Day evening. Oh, fiddling with. Yeah, sorry about that. Did you celebrate Valentine's Day yesterday? No, I did not celebrate Valentine's Day. I did see a female friend and we had a very jolly time, but I did definitely... See... That Does that was... count as Valentine's yeah, Day? Yeah, for sure. You're quite big into Valentine's Day. You know that there's like a lot of... Um... 
There's a lot of hate for Valentine's Day. Well, there's a lot, a lot of, of hate. This is a fucking terrible word. Do you know what? I actually don't. I think I've sort of accidentally become the poster girl for Valen- You're ca- Valentine's Day. the poster girl for Valentine's Day. I don't love it because it's the same thing with Valentine's Day that you should be treasuring your most loved people in your life all year round rather than when a load of press releases tell you to. But I did notice there's been much more coverage around Valentine's Day this year. Emily Hill, who's got a book out this week called Bad Romance. She wrote a really great piece for The Guardian about if you're single, a really empowering and kind of punk thing that you can do is like celebrate the romance in your female friendships and the women in your life. And it was a really lovely piece. I think there's been more of a kind of uptake on it. I'm not surprised it's really big now because I think there's a lot of female solidarity and probably quite a lot of hot air around female relationships, but also some non-hot air yeah about you know post me too times up women sticking together totally there's also been a book written by dolly alderton all about female friendship um which has you know changed the course of Valentine's day i think for many women <laughs> i thought you were gonna say changed the course of our lives though that too that too sometimes i think it has changed my life changed <laughs> the course of Valentine's day <laughs> such a specific achievement Anyway, they were discussing worst Valentine date stories on Good Morning Britain this Your morning. Your favourite? And normally my favourite, but they've got Jeremy Kyle on um, this week, and he is possibly the worst presenter. Does that mean that you time. are missing Piers Morgan, Pandora? I'm missing Susanna Reid. Okay. <laughs> they had the guy on whose date chucked the poo out the window and oh. got stuck. You know, oh. that thick, that epic tale it's such a pretty much owned 2017 that story I feel like that's just dated back for years and the other one about someone who had the poo in the pocket in the no no this was this was a big one last year this was a tinder date where she tried to chuck her poo out the window and she got stuck and he had to call the fire brigade yes you're right she was a it was student really big. wasn't she yeah really we big. talked about it on the show and the guy seemed really nice he said that him and the girl stay in touch via Facebook <laughs> that was so funny and there was that desperate photo of her stuck in between window panes yeah, it went viral. Can you see her face? No, she looks truly traumatised in the picture. But I do feel like those kind of poo myths... Have you not heard other ones? No, this was not a myth. This was a genuine tale. I've just heard them circulating for years. There's the one about the boy who does the poo and then he he can't flush it down so he wraps it up and he puts it in his pocket and then he forgets That's about it. That's a Valentine's Day story. No, it I'm was being the first date. To this this is a Valentine's poo story. I went on Emma Barnett's BBC Radio 5 live show um, this week and she had people ringing in to give their worst Valentine's Day stories. And this one woman wrote in to say she had this like traumatising experience with a man who on a first date ordered an enormous amount of garlic bread and a spectacularly large lasagna for himself. And then he cut up the bread really specifically and loaded the lasagna on to make sandwiches. <laughs> That's amazing. And I like, I swooped to this man's defence, obviously on air. And then another man rang in to agree that the lasagna sandwich isn't too much of a crime in of itself, like perhaps not on a first date. And then um, the I think sandwich. the man felt like a bit of simpatico between us, so then he emailed me afterwards. Are you going for a lasagna sandwich? Um, no, but I would be happy with a lasagna sandwich. Probably. To be honest, the Good Morning Britain story was slightly ruined by the fact that they wouldn't use the word poo, possibly because it's morning television. So Christine bleakly kept referring to it in this really... Oblique, obliquely, 
but dull way, calling it a wrapped substance. Oh, that makes you a bit sick. That's worse. Well, Andy Peters then made me throw up in my mouth by saying, moral of the story, don't do plop plops on the first date. Oh my God, that's horrible. What's Andy Peters doing on Good Morning Bruce? Talking about plop plops. Anyway, no more poo. Scatology is now done. Some updates from last week's episode. I've replaced the olive oil with almond oil. Regular listeners will know what I'm talking about. And I've been in charge of forwarding all those emails of personal... What about say you've been in charge of administration? Oh my God, no. I've been in charge of forwarding all those emails of women sharing their very detailed and personal stories of... The perineum. Perineum massage. So thank you very much for that. I've made sure Pandora's had all of them. Um, Kylie Jenner's baby picture of her daughter Stormy Webster has become the most liked Instagram post of all time since we discussed it on last week's show beating previous winner Beyonce's pregnancy picture it's always babies and pregnancy that wins Mm, isn't it yeah that's interesting reproduction is still a woman's most valued commodity (laughs) yeah that is weird that is weird handmaid's tale as told by Instagram (laughs) anyway did you know that Will and Grace is back Yes. So how do I watch it? Is it on Sky? So it's on Channel 5. Right. Bit mean. It's camper than ever. And it's actually so much better than I remember it. My husband was obsessed with it, naturally, back in the day. But I was I was always a bit of a half-hearted fan. But I'm a firm one now. There's so many brilliant zingers in there. I watched five episodes back to back. And Karen says something. Do you know which one Karen is? Yeah, I love Karen. So Karen says something which made me think of you, Dolly. On arriving past the appointed time that she's meant to arrive, she says, sorry I'm late, I got here as soon as I wanted to. (laughs) Is this in reference to when I last came to your house and I turned up basically an hour late because I'd had my first hangover since dry January? (laughs) No, but I think that you should say, sorry I'm late. I think you should own your lateness and say, sorry I'm late, I got here as soon as I wanted to. (laughs) And I got an Uber here and back and it was mid-afternoon and I basically ate everything in Pandora's fridge. There was a brilliant piece in the Times magazine on Saturday last weekend by the writer James Bloodworth about working at Amazon. So he went undercover to work at the distribution centre in Staffordshire, where 1,200 people work. And he revealed that he was one of the only Britons to work there. One Romanian woman flat out asked him why he would work there. Um, The average salary is £245 a week. And he walked 10 miles a day because the centre was so large, leaving his feet like cottage cheese. It's an extract from a book he has written about the gig economy, which I'm very interested in because I think with the gig economy, it's not just this quite sort of liberal call to just ban the whole thing. It's actually, for a lot of people, it's the only kind of work they can get. And the moment you start regulating the gig economy, which we do need, the moment that a lot of these people, such as Romanian immigrants, won't be able to get that work because there will be a vast amount of protocol you'll have to go through, Mm. which there isn't at the moment. So I I find it quite interesting and I find it a bit of a conflict and I don't think it's, you know, it's just a case of saying, well, ban it. It's, you know, it's cruel because actually some people would really suffer from banning it. So it's more complicated than that. I'm sure his book goes into it. He's a Trotskyist, so I think there's probably a lot of interesting political commentary as well. What I also found interesting is he's actually only working in the Amazon distribution centre 35 hours a week, which isn't very much a 35 hour week. And it limits how much he can earn. But those 35 hours are broken down into 12 and a half hour shifts. So you're mm. still ruined by work, even if hypothetically you could be working a lot more. I found it quite hard to read, actually, because I am a total Amazon obsessive. I buy everything from Amazon, from TV dinner trays to microwavable back support. <laughs> so it was... Um, 
quite confronting mm. for me to read about the reality of somewhere that I'm And how it can get to you so fast and how it can get to you. I mean so fast. Mm. You can order something Sunday lunch and it's there by Sunday evening for free and that's Sunday. Mm. But then then you have to ask yourself how and why that is. I've been reading Zadie Smith's new anthology of short stories, Feel Free, which is my favourite medium, as many of you may know. Side note, Zadie Smith actually appeared on your beloved Adam Buxton's podcast recently. It's one of my favourite episodes. I particularly enjoy Zadie Smith on pop culture. Well, I love anyone writing about pop culture. And she wrote an essay on Justin Bieber, or at least the construct of Justin Bieber. It's quite a complex and philosophical essay linking Bieber to the work of the dead Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. She says that people meet Justin Bieber but they do not experience him. And actually we meet a lot of people in our lifetime but we don't experience them at all. That's so true. And in fact we may not even experience some of our own family. Anyway, I hope that's piqued your interest as well as your confusion. The book is definitely worth a read. There are lots of other lovely essays, including one on the closure of a library in Wilsdon in North London, which is very near to where I live. Um, So I loved reading that because it felt intimate Mm. and immediate. And And I also really enjoyed that it was originally published in the New York Review of Books, a story about a library shutting in North London. And I thought, damn, Zadie Smith, if you can make the New York review of books publish your piece on a library shutting in Wilsdon then you really you really have the power she does and she she uh kind of because she describes so vividly she can transcend cultures in that way Mm. in a way that otherwise in America it's very very difficult they don't take to those kind of English references as well as we take to Mm. American references and I remember she wrote a great piece I think for the New Yorker about the difference between American takeout and London takeaway and of course, we must talk about Quincy Jones's interview. For those of you who have not read the most indiscreet celebrity interview of all time. Brilliant. The 84-year-old producer, who has won 28 Grammys and co-produced much of Michael Jackson's music, dropped a series of humdingers in an interview with Vulture, so spicy that legal action has been mentioned. And the journalist who interviewed him actually said in a follow-up piece this week that there was a lot he didn't include for fear of how litigious and explosive oh, I hate that was. he said that because now I'm just desperate to go out to for, for a drink with him and find out what it was. Quincy's revelation include that Marlon and Brando would fuck a mailbox and had sexual relations with men including James Baldwin and Richard Pryor and actually Richard Pryor's family have been I think left pretty devastated by that claim so there has been some fallout Um, he also asserted that Michael Jackson stole music he said he was as Machiavellian as they come Mm. and that JFK was killed in a mob hit in a world of play it safe dull celebrity interviews is it safe to say that he blew up the internet yeah, it was incredible. And also, I love Quincy, you know, the music that Quincy Jones has helped create. But even people who'd never heard of Quincy Jones were obsessed with this piece. It's like, yeah, it completely gripped everyone. And it was the way in which, what was so refreshing about it, as you and I know, as we often kind of complain that these profiles now, celebrity profiles, are really hard to get the essence of who someone is. And it's really difficult to get any kind of good, authentic insight. <clears throat> insight from them on how they view the world but what it felt like he was almost like a journalistic suicide bomber he was just like fuck it i'm i'm old i don't care that was his do you think it is because he's old that's that's when i read it that was the complete vibe that i got that he i have nothing to lose he has nothing to lose he will always be a man who changed music do you think do you think michael jackson's estate might sue him 
No, I don't think so, because he's so well-loved and so res- and so respected. And actually, all he did was tell truths. He didn't... He said quite a lot of stuff about Michael Jackson, though, that I bet his family would challenge. Say he said that Michael Jackson was abused by his father. And I don't think that that is something that has been mm. um, verified by the Jackson estate. Mm. But he was also... I thought he was quite fair. Um, we'll put it in the show notes because as Dolly says you really don't need to know anything about Quincy Jones to um, just be blown away by this interview but it's also the way it's one of those interviews that normally I don't like but it works really well that it's written back and forth yeah it, as it's dialogue. a Q&A yeah and yeah. it's hilarious like my friend Lauren the reason I found out about it is Lauren sent me a message saying so this interview is hooked on the fact to promote the fact that Quincy Jones has a memoir coming out and the reason I found out about this interview is that Lauren sent me it and said, I think when you're talking about your memoir, you need to channel more of a Quincy Jones part. <laughs> and she circled this one bit where the journalist had said, there's one point in the book that I'd like to ask you about where you mention, he says, being a dog? Question mark. He said, uh, yes, I'd like to come back to that, but actually we're not going to talk about that right now. So he's just like, he's, he's so 100% himself in it. His, there's no censorship at all. And I think the reason why people have taken to it so well and been so shaken by it is you just don't read those conversations anymore with famous people. No, you don't. 84 years old and blowing up the internet is pretty impressive. But even the bit when he says, I know, I, he says, I carry all these secrets, I carry all this weight, I know things I shouldn't know. And the interviewer says, like, what? And he said, I know who killed JFK. And then he tells them, and then he just says, we shouldn't be talking about this. And the journalist just goes, he's obviously got so many other things he wants to yeah. talk about. He's just kind of like, okay, and they move on. Yeah, it's extraordinary. What have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I tell you, a column that I really enjoyed reading this week is India Knight's Sunday Times column. She's had a run of columns that we've really, really liked in the last couple of months. Always love her column in the Sunday Times magazine, yeah. And this one was no different. So the title of the column was, You Don't Have to Be a CEO with Nine Kids to Be a Superwoman. And basically what she's kind of going into is that in a world where understandably we're so keen to empower women and tell them that they can do anything that they want and kind of inflate them to this place of kind of omnipotence. She said the downside of that is that, you know, a lot of women, a lot of humans will prefer to live slightly smaller lives or quieter lives or not be these kind of bastions of of record-changing achievement and how we kind of have to level the playing field a little bit more. And I just found it a really interesting piece. Here's um, a paragraph that I found particularly thought-provoking. The playwright David Hare said recently that writing strong women was a boring cause that he was sick of. Having just women who stormed through the film or play being rude to everyone, and that's called strong women. That's not my idea of equality, he said, causing me to whoop. He added that he had the right to write all kinds of women and that the important thing was to show women doing jobs equally as the normality of the thing. And then she goes on to say, I worry that in our well-intentioned rush to emancipate every girl from every shackle, we're stoking up huge anxiety because not everybody wants to be extraordinary or pioneering or Nobel bound. For every potential Marie Curie, there's someone whose heart thrills at the idea of running her own hair salon, but who is too scared or embarrassed to say so. That David Hare quote is from a interview he did with Kerry Mulligan. Really? Yeah, which is really great. They are completely, even though one is a 30-something-year-old woman and the other is a 70-year-old man, mm. they're really, really simpatico. Where um, was that published? It was in The Times a few weeks ago. I'll link in the show notes. I think he's an interesting man, David Hare. I was, I 
became aware of him again more recently in the Joan Didion uh, Netflix documentary that I talked about a few months ago. He's one of the talking heads on it and he comes across as a, a very compassionate, very enlightened, very interesting man. Well, he wrote um, a play about Oscar Wilde. So when I was studying Dorian Gray, I think I read uh, the play by him, The Judas Kiss. But he's, um, yeah, he's an incredibly interesting playwright. Mm. He's probably one of the most important British playwrights there is. Mm. Do you want to talk to me now about Sex and the City, Dorian? Finally! <laughs> so, I'm sure you're all very aware of the story. From Oscar Wilde to Kim Cattrall. <laughs> it's the Hilo! I'm sure you're all very aware of how everything has fallen out in the last week, but I'm going to refresh your memory. So people have been obsessed with the ongoing tension between Sarah Jessica Parker and you Kim Cattrall. You No, but for many, many years, almost since the beginning of the show, it's been something that's been speculated on. And rumours have always circulated that Sarah Jessica Parker was more enthusiastic about doing... About the whole Sex and the City franchise and doing the film, she was more excited about it. Stop smirking at me like that. You've never seen me so impassioned. <laughs> You're going to put Kipsy in your pants. Um, yes, yeah, so people have always thought that Kim Cattrall was more reluctant to do the films. And there's been kind of rumours that she's been difficult as she held up production. Sarah Jessica Parker has always denied it. I think this is the thing that's really hooked me in. She has always flat out denied that there's been any tension. And very recently them. she denied it. I think we talked about it on the podcast. Yes, I'm, I can insert a clip here. We were. Li- I was listening to the Nerdist podcast with an interview with her and she talked very convincingly and persuasively about how she found those rumours to be very misogynistic. Why are you guys asking us about if we spent time together this weekend and you're not asking the guys at Sopranos? Right. Like, of course we didn't. We just spent 90 hours together. Of course we're not going to be together on the weekend. (laughs) Because Cynthia has three children, and I have a son, or I have eight siblings, and friends that I haven't seen outside work, dear friends of 20 and 30 years, you know? And why are you guys monitoring our off-camera? Why are you, you know... Why do you think that was? We are women. They just wanted it to be bad, nasty because I think it's like this sort of age old like Byzantine I like fighting with I don't know right. it was too hard to imagine that it was real so then last week Kim Cattrall's brother Christopher went missing from his home in Canada and she did a social media outreach when they were kind of searching for him tragically a few days later she revealed again on social media that he had tragically died Sarah Jessica Parker wrote underneath, Dearest Kim, my love and condolences to you and yours and Godspeed to your beloved brother. Then Kim Cattrall posted an image of just text on a blank screen that said, I don't need your love and support at this tragic time at Sarah Jessica Parker. My mum asked me today, when will Sarah Jessica Parker, that hypocrite, leave you alone? Your continuous reaching out is a painful reminder of how cruel you really were then and now. Let me make this very clear if I haven't already. You are not family. You are not my friend. So I'm writing to tell you one last time to stop exploiting our tragedy in order to restore your nice girl persona. Then she wrote, copy and paste link. And then a link to a New York Post piece from months ago talking about the mean girls culture that destroyed sex in the city. That's basically um, Kim Cattrall against the other three. And then the plot thickens. Cynthia Nixon also wrote on the Instagram post. Hey, Kim, such awful news. So sorry to hear. Sending you love, XO. And 
Kim Cattrall responded to that saying, Cynthia, hearing your voice meant so much to me. According to Us Weekly, I think it's been, comments have been disabled now. She wrote, thank you for reaching out. Love, Kim, hashtag sex in the city. What do you make of it, Pandora? So SJP is the one that she has real issue with. Yes, although she's also said that she that she's not close with all three of them, but Sarah Jessica Parker seems to be the one she finds cruel, is her word. Well, she said in, in this interview that I read recently, I don't know why she's playing the victim. And she also said, which a lot of people would say, you know, I don't think there is cause for us to reunite. I don't think the world needs four white privileged women, which is something... Making Lawrence's my labia jokes. <laughs> what about Big? What does he say? Oh, yeah, this is great. So Chris Noth um, was... Was this story has really not just made me go mad? It's really captured the imagination of the whole world. <laughs> There's a so lot of Sex in the City fans out there. A TMZ reporter approached Chris Noth and asked him about the feud, and apparently he just shot a side eye and uh, rolled up the window, <laughs> like he's actually Mr. Big. Exactly. Was he in a black limo? But tell me what? Where do you stand on it? What do you think's going on? I think that Kim Cattrall has been doing various interviews um, during a state of grief, Mm. which probably exacerbates um, any issues you have with people. And I think they're just very different people, aren't they? I think it's really sad. Part of me is um, disappointed that she has felt the need to share it all with her. As a journalist, I'm thrilled. (laughs) As a woman, I'm disappointed. Mm. It's not great, great for the face of sisterhood, is it? No, I'm just really bored of that, like... Four women can never be friends. Girls are always bitches. Me too. Everyone always hates each other. But also, why? And it's it so felt polarized. like this was really resistant to that. Yeah. Um, but at least we have girls. They all do seem to be really good friends. I know Lena Dunham is persona non grata at the moment, but they do. As the four of them seem to be good friends, so maybe they can achieve what Sex and the City hasn't, which is friendship. I think I'm have been very quick to defend Sarah Jessica Parker because I feel like in the narrative where this is going. Kim Cattrall is more of an oversharer about her personal life. Sarah Jessica Parker's been a sort of stage kid since she was two. So I think she the reason she never responds to this stuff, I think that she is much more private and professional. She's I also think. an exec producer on Sex and the City. Yeah. So she's both kind of in front and behind. She's in the money rooms having the talks. Yeah. And then she's on the camera with the other gals. So of course she's earning a lot more money. But I just think there's a world in which that we have to remember that these are just flawed human beings and I think these are just colleagues that didn't get on very well so rather than you know I know that the narrative will go into who is the goody and who is the baddie and people fucking love toppling Sarah Jessica Parker and that really annoys she's me she's really unpopular isn't she yeah but she it, was I remember at the time of Sex and the City people were furious that she was the heroine because she like wasn't pretty enough yeah there that, was a that real, really, real anger about that, that. But that that's very sinister and misogynistic mm. I think because what it's saying is she's not a generically beautiful I think she's beautiful but she's not a generically beautiful woman and I think people felt like she, you know there was an arrogance within her that she dared to be a desirable leading woman like that mm. makes her some sort of cocky like we've got to bring her down a peg or two mm. I find that hideous and also something I don't like about it is I think Sarah Jessica Parker is quite um peppy and all-american girl as I said I've listened to a lot of interviews with her and read a lot of interviews with her she's like a kind of Pollyanna stage kid with her whole persona I think and I think that because she's a predominantly nice person which is most humans most humans are predominantly well-intentioned people who fuck up now and again or have a bit of a dickish streak that can come out at certain moments I think that people love 
feeling like there's a secret Sarah Jessica Parker and they want to be vindicated that she's an awful person and it's all a lie and she's fake. So that's what I don't like about it. It feels like people will love the opportunity to paint her as Machiavellian. And now I'm cutting you off. (laughs) (laughs) Support for the Hilo comes from Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From maps to email, search and beyond, Google has a history of looking at the norm and finding a better way. Each week, we're going to do a curiosity challenge where we pose a question to one another, which encompasses the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the personal to the philosophical to the surreal. This week, my question to you is, with child rearing just around the corner for you, do you believe a person is formed before they enter the world or are they shaped by everything around them? In short, nature or nurture? Definitely both. I think nurture has a huge amount to answer for. The environment that you cultivate around your child, the education, the the privilege or lack thereof. But also I think some things are inherited. You know when someone says, oh, you're just like your father. Sometimes I don't think that's nurture. I think they came out of the womb just like that. What about you? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's... um a bit of both. Also, I'm glad that you didn't say it's just nature because that would be an easy way for you to just sort of abscond all responsibility. <laughs> the Google Pixel 2 is the world's best smartphone, capturing your best ever photos whether you're in bright light or dark evenings. So starry nights look as good as sunny days. Thank you very much to the Google Pixel 2. And now it's time for the top line, read by Pandora. over the decision made by iconic Hampstead Ladies Pond, a favourite of Dolly's, to allow trans women access to the pond continues with a hundred of the 400 members of the Kenwood Ladies Pond Association meeting last week to discuss concerns around the policy. Activists from the radical feminist group Mayday for Women stood outside the meeting urging members to lobby to keep the Hampstead Heath Ladies Pond a sanctuary for women. Hollywood manager Jill Messick, who formerly represented the actor Rose McGowan, committed suicide last week. Her family called her collateral damage in the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Supermodel Gigi Hadid has hit back at body critics who once accused her of being too fat and now accuse her of being too thin. I will not further explain the way my body looks, just as anyone with a body type that doesn't suit your beauty expectation shouldn't have to, she tweeted. Please, as social media users and humans, learn to have more empathy for others. Use your energy to lift those who you admire, rather than be cruel to those who do not. The NHS has revealed that 5% more babies are conceived during Valentine's week than the rest of the year. This makes February second to Christmas in terms of baby conception. Oxfam is at the centre of a sex exploitation scandal, causing celebrity ambassadors such as Minnie Driver to step down after it was revealed that the charity covered up the results of an inquiry into Oxfam staffers using prostitutes whilst delivering aid in Haiti in 2011. Oxfam have said that with 10,000 NGOs in Haiti alone, it is impossible for them to oversee the behaviour of all of their aid workers. A survey of older Britons suggests that 52% of over 65s feel like they do not have enough sex, and nearly a third are happy to have sex on a first date. It also found out that 1 in 10 over 75s have had multiple sexual partners since turning 65. The charity Independent Age said its survey showed age was no barrier to having a sex life. 
A BBC investigation has shown that Xanax is being sold illegally to children as young as 13 on social media sites. BBC Southeast discovered that prescription drugs are being advertised on Instagram and Facebook. Recently, a group of teenage girls were sent home from school for taking Xanax bought over the internet on their lunch hour. The Home Office has said it is taking action. A 20-year-old female student at Durham University has tragically died after being crushed in a nightclub queue. Olivia Burt sustained fatal head injuries whilst queuing to enter Masula Club last week. Eyewitness reports suggest that her death was caused by a barrier outside the club, which toppled over after a group of boys pushed into the queue. Labour have unveiled a series of policies about pets, including the default right to keep pets in your rented home. The draft proposal also includes the banning of foie gras and makes it mandatory for drivers to report when they have hit a cat. In a bid to make Facebook more socially responsible, Mark Zuckerberg is trialling a Facebook downvote button in the US. Facebook spokesperson was quick to dispel myths that the new feature is the much-requested dislike button and instead says that the button is being marketed as a feature for people to give us feedback about comments on public page posts. And that was The Top Line. For the Hilo comes from Treatwell, the brighter way to book beauty. Treatwell is not only the brightest way to book beauty, it's by far the easiest. Browse reviews before booking, find off-peak and last-minute prices, choose from over 25,000 salons across the UK and Ireland. Book easily online or on the app 24-7. Beauty where you want, when you want it. The best thing is when you book a really late appointment like 9pm and then, provided it isn't something painful like a wax, you just float on home afterwards. Valentine's Day will be done by the time you'll listen to this, so forget hearts in your pubes. <laughs> Kidding. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't appreciate all that love that's still lingering in the air. Show yourself some love. I loathe the term self-care, as many of you know, but perhaps this is a valid name check here. And try a relaxing massage, a detoxifying facial, a fresh manicure, or a blow dry. I'm going to be investing in some massage, reflexology, and at some point I will deal with the feral situation of my hands and feet. Oh to the joys of being 400 years pregnant and not having to spend your money on socialising. Many thanks to Treatwell. It's time to introduce our author for this week, the writer Laura Freeman. I've long admired Laura's journalism. She wrote a beautiful piece about Medigliani, which I spoke about on the podcast during his exhibition at the Tate Modern. And when we saw that she had a book coming out on the 22nd of February, we leapt at the chance to have her on. Laura is, and I don't use this in a superfluously flattering way, but in a factual way, fearsomely clever. She got a double first from Cambridge and can write about art with the ease of it being cheese in the supermarket. So the world must have been her oyster, right? Well, not quite. For many years, Laura struggled with a life-changing illness, anorexia. From the age of 14, it ruled her life. But as she says in her beautiful book, the one appetite she never lost was her love of reading. I must point out that Laura was uh, cringing so hard when we said she's fearsomely, fearsomely <laughs> clever. But you are, it is a fact, I'm afraid. Welcome to the studio slash Pandora's study. Thank you. <laughs> That's all one word. <laughs> the Telegraph is called The Reading Cure, a luminous memoir about recovery. Can you tell us a little bit about The Reading Cure and how it came about? 
Well, it came out actually, it, it started as, as many books do as, as an article um, and it was something I wrote for The Telegraph uh, talking about really what the book is in miniature, which is uh, having been very ill and then having found salvation and solace in reading books uh, and particularly reading wonderful descriptions of food in books. I think one of the things about anorexia is it makes you very frightened of food and makes you see all food as bad and undesirable. And actually having meals described on the page in very sumptuous and appetising language sort of, I think, gave me the courage to, to try them again in real life. Uh, and having written that article, I think you you both know this as journalists, usually you just think, well, I've written that and on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and you're always anxious about the next deadline. But I didn't really want to leave it. And I felt there was a bigger story mm. and a longer story I wanted to tell. Eating disorders and the rise of eating disorders um, have been in the press this week. Figures from NHS Digital obtained by The Guardian show that in the last six years, the number of people admitted with a primary or secondary diagnosis of an eating disorder has almost doubled. As you describe in your book so well, eating disorders differ wildly from case to case and person to person, both in the way they manifest and, and what they feel like internally. So in no way am I asking you to kind of speak on behalf of all those who have suffered or are still suffering with the illness, but I was wondering if you had any insight in, in what you might think has caused the increase. There are probably two things, which is one, there's, there's a rise in, as is reported in, in anorexia and bulimia and very extreme manifestations of, of disordered eating as a mental illness. I suspect there's also a rise in more general low-level disordered eating, which may partly be fuelled by selfie culture or the wellness industry. I think has has, has added to a greater sense of anxiety mm. about food and, and what one eats. Um, and I was thinking, uh, as I was eating my breakfast this morning, about wellness. Um, and I had porridge with milk and then tea with milk and then I had a boiled egg and toast with butter and that is lots of gluten and lots of dairy and I feel well. Mm. Yes, and that, I'm glad that you've used that word well because you're right, it's that we've um, lost the, the true meaning of well. Wellness is not about being well and that sounds like, to me, the wellest breakfast that <laughs> one could have. But also it's interesting that you said because I heard on the radio in the car a couple of days ago that Apparently the, the proportion of people admitted with an eating disorder to a hospital who claim they are vegan has become much larger in recent years. And there's kind of, obviously I'm not saying that all veganism is a conflation of eating disorders at all, um, but I think there's more investigation into how that might have, one might have influenced the other. I think anorexia, it, it, it makes you very devious and deceptive because you want to cover up what you're doing mm -hmm. to yourself. And certainly when I was unwell, which was sort of at my worst, which was sort of, I don't know, 2001, 2002, I would always say, I'm eating a healthy diet. I just want to eat a healthy diet. Uh, I think this was before, you know, wellness or clean eating entered the sort of vocabulary. Um, and I suppose perhaps saying I'm eating clean or I'm eating vegan is just another way, if you are unwell, of, of putting a kind of gloss and a veneer on, on what may be actually an illness underlying the, the choices you're making about your food. The thing that's so important about your story is that whether or not they love reading, so many women and men will identify with your experience. It's a tale as old as time, yet we still struggle with how to both treat and talk about anorexia and other mental health diseases. And I always think of Charlotte Perkins Gilman and the Yellow Wallpaper and other hysterical, quote-unquote, Victorian women, and I think how many of them were just 
terrified and traumatised by food. How many of these women were written off as mad when they were, in fact, in the grip of a, of an obsessive disease which pivoted around consumption? Mm. I, I think it, it, it's not a new phenomenon. I, I often think back to the sort of crinoline and corsets craze of the 19th century and women kind of binding themselves into tinier and tinier cages, really, that not only make them look physically minute, but actually stop you eating because your stomach mm. is so constricted. Um, so I don't think eating disorders have, have sort of come out of nowhere in the last few years. I think, you know, as you describe in something like the yellow wallpaper, sort of nervous disorders of some sort or another uh, are sadly always with us. I talk quite a bit about Virginia Woolf in my book. Mm. I don't know quite whether what she had was anorexia or some sort of combination of mental distresses. But clearly at times, as her husband Leonard described, she found it you know, almost impossible to eat and she had this terrible kind of guilt complex about, about any sort of food when she was at her worst. Something you described so beautifully is that it's not the disordered eating we need to focus on, but rather the disordered mind. And that kind of the eating and the, the starving or the deprivation or the purging habits are only ever a symptom of a disordered mind. And um, I'm actually just going to read the paragraph that I thought kind of described this so well, where you talk about um, the home of one's mind. And you say that someone without an eating disorder, that there might be an armchair with a table and a lamp and a polished top stacked with favourite titles. And then you go on to say, now let me describe a different sort of library. This one belonging to the disordered anorexic mind. The bookcases have fallen, their glass fronts smashed, their contents in disarray across the floor. The windows too have shattered. Rain and damp have got at the books, spoiling their bindings and soaking the pages. I think your writing is best actually when you are um, relating your mind to a library, which is obviously very um, in keeping with the theme of the book. And it works so beautifully when throughout the book you have times when your your bookshelves are, you know, colour-coded or being, being more sort of organised and then other times when all the books have flown off mm. again and things have smashed and you're back to trying to pick up the pages and, and assemble it and it's just it's a really great metaphor yeah can you tell us a little bit more about that metaphor I think I was trying to find a way to bring to life for someone who's maybe never had experience of, of this particular illness just a way of visualizing what it is when your mind really doesn't feel in your control and in my case I suppose I, I came up with with the idea of a library because I am a very bookish person and for somebody else it might be a greenhouse or it might be a bird watching shed or it might be a painter's studio or whatever or wherever it is that you feel most happy and yourself. Um, and I think when I feel well and strong, you know, I, I, I do imagine my head as this lovely, well-ordered, light place to sit and read. Uh, and when I am not at my best, um, it feels like that room is a mess and it is chaos. Um, and it is a great struggle to, to find order in it. And it's not a nice place to sit any longer. Uh, so I was just sort of reaching for, for, for something that people could grasp mm. um, that, that was an easy way of representing you know, the mind, which is a very difficult and, and unruly thing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
I'm one of the few women that you mentioned that I know that has never suffered from an eating disorder. I'll forever remember a fact that I was saddened by that a third of my year at school when I was doing my A-levels had eating disorders. Dolly's faced her own struggles with food, which is obviously more her tale to tell than mine. But it is something that is so unbelievably common as those, as those stats that Dolly was relaying from the NHS would indicate. But you're not keen on the term eating disorder, are you? Can you explain why it's an insufficient term to you? I, th- I think the worry is that, that, that when you are treating what, what is called an eating disorder, if all you do is say, well, you are terribly underweight, um, so here is a menu plan and you must go away and eat it or you must be on bed rest, um, and if you eat sufficient calories a day and you gain a bit of weight, haha, you know, we can release you and you'll be well and off you go. Mm. Um, the trouble is, you, you know, you're really only kind of, I don't know, it's sort of, you know, putting a sticking plaster on a huge gaping wound. Um, and if you send someone off out of a clinic or out of a hospital without really having addressed what the underlying causes and triggers um, and despondencies are, you know, the person is only going to go away and repeat whatever they did to land themselves in hospital or in treatment in the first place. And I think that you have to do a really quite kind of dig deep job on yourself mm. when you are ill with the help of doctors and therapists and parents to find out, you know, what it was that sort of set you down that sort of rather self-destructive road in the first place. What do you think is a better term from eating disorder? How do you think we should refer to, because obviously it's not just anorexia, there's also bulimia and obesity in, in any, any, any situation where someone's relationship with food is not... Mm. I mean, I was about to, how do you even describe an optimum relationship <laughs> with food? But what do you think would be a better... And I'm asking because I'm genuinely interested, actually, because I think, as you say, it's important that we keep refining how we talk about mm-hmm. um, mental health. And this is, as you've said, this is mental health. This is not a physical disease. Mm-hmm. This is one that, that comes from the library or the greenhouse mm-hmm. or the painter's studio of your mind. I think, I, I mean, I, I, it's a really interesting question. And I don't know, I've not come up with a useful sort of you know, tag that we, we could put on it. I, th- I think the, the truth is that, that you know, anorexia, you know, is going to cover a huge multitude of sins, as is bulimia, as is orthorexia, as is, you know, eating to kind of binging excess uncontrollably. And ultimately, you've got to look at the individual person. And there's no point having a, a menu plan or a treatment that, that is just a one size fits all. I think you've got to look at each person as they are and their illness um, and, and work out a way through. And also, as you describe, you know, there was a period of my life uh, where I just stopped eating for a couple of years. And what was the most challenging and continues to be a challenge for me and will be, sadly, I think, until my dying day, isn't changing my daily habits, you know, like engaging with rational daily habits that means that I'm showing myself kindness and and care. That's not the issue. It's the hardwired thoughts. Mm-hmm. Well, someone said to me, talking about the book, they said, oh, um, but, but why did you do that? And, and why were you doing that? And why didn't you eat? And I guess I don't really know. You know, that's the thing about something that's irrational. I wish I could tell you what was going through my mind at 13 when I thought, I don't want to eat. I don't want to, you know, I sort of hated my body and I walked and worked out compulsively. I don't really know why, but I just had to. It was irresistible. Mm. Um, I think these things would be much easier to address if, if, if you could find cause and effect. But that's where the work is, isn't it? You know, that, as you said, that kind of deep understanding. Mm. Something that I found very upsetting, but also very honest and really resonated with me, was when you talk about the first time when you realised as a young, very young teenager, while you were wearing a swimsuit, that your body 
was wrong. There was something wrong about your body. And actually, recently, I listened to an audio book called The Power of Vulnerability by Brené Brown. And she says, the definition of shame isn't thinking you've done something wrong. It's thinking you are made wrong. I think, I sometimes look back, I'm lucky to have had a very happy childhood. I think I was a shy child, but basically very easy in my own skin and sort of okay. And I didn't have a very easy transition from a primary school where I'd had lots of friends and got along very well to a secondary school where I felt a bit overwhelmed by, I think, the size of it. And, you know, you're suddenly the youngest in a group of, you know, seven or eight hundred girls. And I I think about halfway through my second year at school, I just began to get this feeling, you know, of wrongness and that Mm -hmm. I think everything about me wasn't quite good enough, whether it was, you know, how thin I was or how hard I worked or what I achieved academically. I think that constant sense of falling short. Mm -hmm. um, Lots of people have it in kind of one manifestation or another. Um, but it, it does kind of um, wear, wear you down. It does as well because I think what happens, and you see this with a lot of young teenage girls, is that they fundamentally feel like they're carrying around a secret underneath their clothes. You know, that they're carrying around this shameful, shameful secret and that's such a pressure to feel. And, the, and that becomes parlayed to the outer world through your physical home, but actually your physical home is only, well, it's the surface, isn't it, mm. of, of everything that's underneath. You write so imaginatively about the lassitude of hunger. And I said to Dolly, you're going to love um, Laura's prose. Yeah, they were just the most sumptuous and amazing, gorgeous. You just fall into your prose. And you write with real lyricism. Um, There are various passages from the extensive collection of books you devoured, which inspired me to go and buy books, actually, that I'd never read, like Anne of Green Gables. Oh, it's a (laughs) favourite. I love Anne of Green Gables. And we wondered if you could read out a little passage for us that we thought was particularly beautiful. I have more sympathy than Virginia Woolf does for doctors presented with a disorder of the mind. How do you treat what isn't visible, what won't show up on any scan? You cannot tap your fingertips on stomach, sternum and scalp and say... Tell me where it hurts. There is no blister to lance, no wound to suture, no muscle to ice. You don't catch it like a virus. It is not a germ that gets into a paper cut. There is no warning, rash or temperature. Wolf called it the depression, which does not come from something definite, but from nothing. Not all doctors are Orlando charlatans or Dalloway barrackers. My own doctors worked miracles. They saved my life. They took a body, a starved shell, weeks from death, and would not let it die. When all I could hear were Jabberwock voices telling me I could not live, the doctors talked, and my mum talked, and they kept their voices level until their words began to make sense of nonsense. They asked what the Jabberwock said and challenged its looking-glass gibberish. They countered madness with reason, The voices were not real, they were not right, and I would never be rid of them so long as I starved. If I could only eat a little, that little would start to quiet them. Thank you. Beautiful, thank you. Food plays a vital role in our lives and in culture, particularly now, as we talked about wellness earlier, fads and trends. Recently, we talked about food snobbery on the podcast after Ruby Tando made some brilliant comments about Um, the prejudice towards ready meals and just today I was reading about the riposte to veganuary, so vegan January which is February dairy they're not easy to say they're really not easy to say these are they 
But your book largely focuses not on these zeitgeisty health trends like wellness, which one might suspect a recovering anorexia to dwell upon or to become attached to, but on what can only be described as gloriously old school representations of food, you know, wartime nursery food. So forget avocado toast and smoothies, you write about beef steak pudding and haystacks of buttered toast, which I particularly enjoy because I feel like it's so rare to write about. It's kind of like Nigella food, you know, and it's increasingly rare to read those kind of representations of food. Was it really important to you that you rooted it in this slightly more, not esoteric, but more kind of timeless or um, dreamlike, maybe? Mm. I, I think so, and one of the writers who really set me off on on this was Dickens. And what I loved about his books was this way that you know there are these feasts, and certainly you know there is this extraordinary kind of Pickwickian appetite in all his books. But but food is just something almost incidental in the kind of great rollicking narrative of the story. Mm. And I think what he showed me is that if you are going to you know have this great sort of coming of age story like a David Copperfield you know you're going to have to stop for lunch at some point and you're going to have to have a hearty dinner uh, and I think I could see that actually to have a life that was worthwhile and rewarding and full of incident and drama and adventure you had to eat something um, mm. you know it's no good you know having kind of half a Frusley bar every three days because you know you're, you're not going to kind of set off on this great walk or explore London or see the seaside as his characters do um, and I think I just saw that connection between food not being something that was evil but actually something that, that just just allowed you to have a kind of more more exciting sort of existence or powered you on to having the life that you yeah. could have I think there's a bit in the book where your mother who who you say was endlessly patient and brilliant how she says that she just wants you to get better so that you can go live this life mm. out there mm. that's waiting for you when did you feel like there was a real and I know this sounds quite trite because it's not like you wake up one morning and you're like oh I'm better how wonderful but when did you feel this real turning point of you know just realizing that you wanted to be powered by food to have to have the life, you know, to, to propel you out of bed, to be the journalist that you are today, to be engaged to the man you love. When did you kind of realise that it was the it was the it was the missing ingredient, pun sort of intended, to you living this life? Um, I, I think I probably had my eureka moment with with a boiled egg, um, and I, I I really really fell in love with Sigrid Sassoon's Memoirs of a Fox Hunting Man, and I I, honestly, I have no interest in fox hunting, I have no interest in cricket, and those his principal passions in life um, but he writes so wonderfully about sport about nature and ultimately about about the first world war um, but he describes he, he sort of invents this this character for himself this Sherston who's a slightly fictionalized version of himself and Sherston wakes up at five o'clock in the morning and he's totally gone mad for fox hunting and, and, and jumping fences uh, and um, there's frost on the ground and he has two boiled eggs and toast and hot milk and he's just full of energy um, and he talks about zestful mornings and I just loved I loved that idea of feeling zesty when you wake up um, and, and having not had a boiled egg for I don't know 12 years or something and sort of getting very freaked out about oh cholesterol and all oh, eggs are fatty mm. and oh you can't eat eggs I thought I'm gonna bally well teach myself to boil an egg um, and, and now I think it's one of my great great comfort foods and I think when you are knackered or low or there's nothing else in the fridge a boiled egg and a bit of toast does you the world of good 
And what is your kind of dream for this book, if, if people can sort of take away one thing from it? I, I really hope they will they will see it as a hopeful book um, and, and whatever difficulties they, they may have that, that they'll sort of feel galvanised and a bit inspired by it, whether it's to eat something new or read something new. I really don't want it to be a misery memoir because um, I have come through a great deal of misery and I feel very happy and excited about the future and, you know, the book's on my bed- bedside table at home. Mm-hmm. And it's very much full of joy, the book as well. Pandora and I both truly believe that books and obviously thoughts and ideas can change the world. I read a book back in 2011 that was absolutely crucial to my recovery and probably is one of the most important books I've ever read in in that sense and it's one that I still have on my shelf and I still read when I find myself kind of feeling vulnerable to old habits or old thought patterns or insecurities it's called Good Girls Do Swallow by Rachel Oaks Ash and it's one I give to people who are suffering similar issues and as I was reading this I just only wish that your book had been out at that time too and I'm sure it would have greatly helped me and I'm sure it will help greatly help a lot of other people too and uh, even if you don't suffer from the issues that the book is kind of hooked on um, you don't need a cure of your own I think to to read this because it's it's a beautiful ode to appetite and literature of itself yes you should be very proud of it and thank you so much for coming to talk to us about the reading cure the reading cure is published by orion on the 22nd of february the link to buy will be in the show notes as usual thank you very much to laura freeman thank you very much to producer charlie and thank you very much to my study for having us Bye-bye. bye bye